This is Justin Linero from the Disturbing the Peace podcast, and you are listening to Pop Goes Your World. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 132, Coming to America, Movie Review. I'm Chris McBrien, that's Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. You'll find us at popgoesyourworld.com. All of our contact information's on our website. And if you're on Twitter, at Amaron underscore DM is Derek, and at C. McBrien is me. Derek, what's new in the world of pop culture for you, my friend? Chris, well, I haven't really had a chance to uh, take in anything brand new. Uh, Obviously, there hasn't really been a lot of stuff out that's brand new. Uh, so I've had a chance to see a few, uh, we'll call them recent things that have started to make their way onto uh, TV and streaming services. Uh, I had a chance just actually today to watch a documentary. You know me, I love me a good documentary. Do you remember uh, a little over 10 years ago, there was a documentary called Supersize Me about a guy who ate nothing but McDonald's? Yeah, it was Morgan Spurlock. I bring it up yes. in class a lot, all the time. It was like in 2006. And yeah. almost took down McDonald's. I mean, it actually forced them to, to relook at the their whole supersized campaign. Absolutely. And there a lot of changes were implemented mm-hmm. uh, either directly or indirectly because of that movie. A lot of changes for the better. I mean, there's still things that they could change, but hey, that's beside the point. But anyway, uh, I, I was uh, looking up Morgan Spurlock on the, uh, the IMDb and I was surprised. I've seen like five or six of his movies, which doesn't surprise me because I like documentaries and doesn't surprise me because I like his work. But I just I hadn't really realized I had seen that many of his things. Anyway, we're flipping through the other day and uh, he's got a sequel to that movie called Super Size Me 2. Holy chicken. And the premise of this one, he talks right at the beginning. He goes, I wanted to come back and revisit the fast food fast food world. It's been over a decade since the last movie. But he goes, I didn't want to just go back to the same gimmick of let's just eat it for a month and see what's what. Because he's like, there's a lot of changes in fast food. It seems to be coming healthier, quote unquote healthier. So he decides that he will, he's going to uh, open his own fast food restaurant But he's going to study the science around what makes a fast food restaurant successful. And so he uses that sort of uh, investigative journalism sort of style that he has with his documentary where he just gathers all the information. He goes to food people. He goes to restaurant people. He goes to marketing people. He goes to focus groups. He goes to the man on the street and he just compiles all of this fascinating information. And then he decides that like the movie's called Holy Chicken. So he decides he's going to open a fast food chicken restaurant. And then he just starts to dive into all of the behind the scenes stuff about the, what he calls big chicken. He goes, they have big tobacco and big oil. He goes, believe it or not, there's a thing called big chicken and they run like 99% of all the chicken in America. And it's, it again, if you like documentaries and you like what you've seen with his work before, it was fascinating. And I, I really enjoyed it. It was quite good. Wow. I, I would encourage you to, to check it out if you can find it. Supersize me to holy chicken. I didn't even know it existed. So I was no, glad, glad you mentioned it. Yeah, that's really uh, yeah. cool. Didn't, and then uh, another one that I watched uh, is a little bit older. I, mm-hmm. I was just – when my wife and I watched it, I said to her, I go, hey, uh, this is maybe one that I'll recommend that, that Chris and I watch on a future podcast. And she turns to me and in a total straight face says, Chris will hate this. Don't recommend this. <laughs> it's because I hate everything, right? Yeah. So the movie is called Waiting. You ever heard of it? Hear of it? I've heard of it. So if I know – from what I know about it, it's, is it Ryan Reynolds, the Canadian yes. actor, the tenant? And it's about waiters and waitresses yes. or something, yes. right? Yes. It's Ryan Reynolds, uh, Anna Faris, um, oh my God, I'm, Justin Long, uh, Chai McBride, uh, uh, Louise Guzman. Um, it's got uh, like a lot of people in it where you're like, you may not know their names right away, but as soon as you see them, you're like, oh yeah, that guy. That they guy. Small yeah. parts. And uh, yeah, it's just, think of, uh, it's it's basically a day in the life as a guy starts his first day to work in a uh, a restaurant. Like, uh, think of it like, uh, like a Kelsey's or a... You know, uh, Chili's or something like that, like a chain restaurant. And then it's all the wacky and zany characters that work there. And uh, it's just this this comedy that comes together as all their lives sort of unfold in one day. It reminded me in a way of a movie like Clerks, where it's just one day in the life of the guys at the convenience store. And 
having worked in retail, although having never worked at a restaurant, I found a lot of it hit pretty close to home. Now, my wife did work in a restaurant for years while she was in high school. And she said, like, it was very, very close to the kinds of things that happened when she worked in a restaurant. So uh, it, it made us laugh a lot. And so I said, well, I know you used to work at uh, the Chuck E. Cheese, right? So I was like, well, maybe Chris could find some humor in this because he used to work in the food services. But I don't know. I don't think I'm going to recommend it. I don't think you're going to like it. Yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to think about it for an upcoming show. If you nominate it, I'll watch it and I'll certainly give you my, my two cents worth. But uh, your wife's probably right. Um, yeah, those those are the two highlights from uh, from my week. One thing I want to mention, I'm, I've am i been going through a bit of a personal trans, sort of a transition. Okay. So as you know, and I'm very honest about uh, everything in my life when I come on here is I have two young kids, you know, seven and 10 years old. And the thing is, I used to be the funniest guy in the world to them. Like I would make jokes and they would laugh and laugh and laugh. And they always thought daddy was the funniest guy ever. But for there's any, if there's any parents that are listening to the podcast, you know, at, at some point you, you go through a transition where you're no longer the funny guy. You're now cringy. So my parent, my kids used to always call me the goat, the greatest of all time. They said, daddy, you're the goat. You're the greatest of all time. It was really nice. Well, it's transition now. I'm now the coat as they call me, which is the cringiest of all time. <laughs> so apparently my jokes have gone from being funny uh, to being cringy. And apparently I am now in the dad joke era. And this all kind of started a little while ago. And, and I touched base on this, I think, in a previous podcast. But I just want to bring it up that my my, my oldest son is, is in the Cubs, you know, like the Cub Scouts, yeah, you know. Cub Scouts, yep. And so one of the things they had to do a little while ago, a couple months ago, was they had to do. Um, were you ever in the Cubs, by the way? Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, you were. And so you're going to understand Beavers, Cubs, Boy Scouts. Yeah, I was in. Th- oh, you'll know where I'm going with this. So uh, I never was. I, I think I went to when I was maybe seven or something like that or eight. I, I remember going. A friend took me to a Cub Scout meeting and I didn't like it. And I never went back. Uh, so anyway, my son's in the Cubs, loves it. He started in Beavers, worked his way up, whatever, loves it. So one of the things they have to do is is a Cub car. You know, you get this oh, little, yeah. the little yeah, yeah, yeah. block of wood. Yep. And then you have to like carve it and then put the wheels on and do everything so my son makes it and it you know he insisted on doing a lot of the work himself which is the way it's supposed to be you know that the dads aren't supposed to do the work so he wanted to do all the work okay no problem so he did this thing and it looked like a jalopy so anyway when he gets done he's he was really disappointed because he was he was saying like daddy it's so slow my car is the slowest of everyone's car it's like a snail it's just a snail i should just call it a snail and he was really upset so i said here's what you need to do you need to paint a big red s on the one side and then put a big red s on the top and another big red s on the other side he's like well why did i do that I said, well, you said it's a snail, right? This way, when it goes down the ramp, everyone will say, look at that escargot. Ba-dum, boom. And he's like, Daddy, you are the cringiest joke teller of all time. <laughs> That's it. And it was just, that was the transition, I think, because he keeps referring to that. So now, apparently, I'm just the dad joke guy. I'm not the funny guy anymore. I am now the coat. Ugh. You're not even original, man. You stole that joke from Trading Places. Of course I did. It's an Eddie Murphy movie. And speaking of which, let's get on to another one of his. I'm your head counselor. I did not enjoy this anymore the second time. <laughs> What's going on? What's wrong? Never seen it. Oh, Never wow. interested in seeing it. No desire to see it. Was not interested at all. Okay, well, I paid $200 for these shoes, but I mean, I'm the best. It's certainly tame by today's standards. There's a very fat pair of pants hanging from the flagpole this morning. It is not something I think I ever need to see again. Oh! Matt Damon. Matt Damon. Okay, so we mentioned Trading Places just a second ago, and I nominated Coming to America from 1988 for this week's show. One of the things I absolutely love about doing this podcast is the fact that I get to nominate a lot of these Gen X movies that I haven't seen in a long time. I love them. I had loved them, you know, 30 years ago, but I haven't had a chance to watch them in so long. So this podcast allows me to go back and watch a lot of these movies that I liked, you know, a long time ago to kind of look at them from a different lens now. How do they hold up? All that kind of stuff. So I nominated Coming to America. Um, We're going to get into this a bit. I believe it was the last sort of great 
sort of comedy movie from the 70s and 80s. This was a, a transition in a lot of ways, and we'll get into that in a bit. But I wanted to uh, have you start us off and, and let me know. Uh, you obviously went back and watched the movie. Uh, you had seen it before that. Yes, I had. Right? So it's not, it wasn't a first-time thing for you this this week. So that's good. You had already seen it once, but you had to go back and watch the movie. Uh, what was your impression of going back and watching this movie, you know, how many years later, you know, 30-plus years later? Uh, what was your impression of watching it? Uh, well, I liked it. I mean, I I remember seeing this movie for the first time in the theater. Uh, I would have probably been 13 or 14 years old. I remember going to see it with my friends. Uh, I remember enjoying it as a young person. I remember seeing it again on video uh, not, not long after. Like, usually it came out on video like about a year later, so I probably saw it the next year. I can remember this eventually coming on TV or one of the movie channels and probably recording it on the video cassette. So like I, when I was young, I saw this movie a lot. I was a big fan of Eddie Murphy. So I had a lot of his movies on video cassette. Then I had seen it. I would say in the last 20 years, I'd probably only seen it once. So uh, there are a lot of viewings as a younger person, not nearly as many viewings now that I'm a little bit older. So when you suggested this movie, I thought, okay, good. It'll give me a chance to go back and watch it with sort of today's lens as, as we do with some of these older movies and see, what holds up and what doesn't and if the jokes still land. Now, part of the thing with comedy is if you know the punchline, the joke isn't usually anywhere near as funny. And and I, unfortunately, with some of these classic comedy movies, that's just the way it is. Some of the jokes are not going to be nearly as funny now as they were the very first time. And that's just the nature of comedy. Um, but no, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I wouldn't say that I absolutely love, love, loved it. I don't think it's Eddie Murphy's best movie. Uh, it's, it's certainly a good movie. Um, but... You know, I certain things I liked, certain things I didn't. Um, I, I what really struck me was some of the parallels to some other movies. So uh, it it reminded me very much of Trading Places, mm -hmm. which we you know just talked about a second ago. But we we reviewed that one what three or four months ago. We did Trading Places, which again I hadn't seen in a long time. Yep, same and star, same director, right? Yeah, so it's like I could instantly see some of the parallels of that where you have someone of privilege who uh, is put in a position where they uh, don't have that privilege anymore. Obviously, the the reasons for that change are different in the two movies. Um, you know, it's it's a an examination of class and wealth. Uh, um, so there's that parallel as well. You got the same director, obviously. And, um, you know, so as I'm watching Coming to America, I kept thinking back to trading places and sort of going, oh, well, this is sort of similar. This is sort of similar. Not that I felt that was a bad thing, but it was just interesting to uh, to see. But uh, and, and of course, cameos, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, a little bit later. Oh, for sure. Um, one of the things that I did really like about it that hadn't really stood out to me before, but I'm obviously more sensitive to it now, is is just the whole idea that the people of wealth and power well, like this, this is a movie where everyone in the cast is black. It's it's you know, it's not a movie about white versus black. It's just you've got um, the people of wealth and the people who don't have wealth are all the same. You're not making that judgment about race. It's it's a it's a comment on class. It's not a comment on color. Uh, but I guess in Whereas, a way it is that's a, a good point. Whereas trading places yeah. had that element in it, right? It did. It did. Good point. Yeah. Good um, point. So again, that that sort of I was more uh, aware of that. Again, as a white guy, you're not usually aware of these things, but. I've had time to learn how to be more aware of this kind of thing. Um, so it was definitely uh, a positive to see that you had Eddie Murphy's character came from uh, a country that was wealthy, where you had the people in power uh, were black people, were the king and the queen, and they were had all the money. And, uh, you know, that that was something that you didn't see very often in the 80s, that's for sure. And, hey, you don't even really see it that much now. But one of the things that it did remind me of uh, sort of the other way around is a movie like Black Panther, the Marvel's comics movie. Now, I know you don't really haven't seen many of the Marvel movies, but uh, have you happened to see Black Panther, Chris? No, I have not. So without ruining too much of it, the idea with Black Panther is that there is this country in Africa that is the most rich and technologically advanced country in the world. And it, they have been it, it's for not, like a it's, century. It's not called Zamunda, is it? No, it's called Wakanda. Okay, and and it was created in the '60s or '70s by the people in Marvel Comics. So, if if anything, this borrowed from that rather than that borrowed from this. But again, when I'm watching this, I'm watching it through today's lens, and with Marvel comic movies being such a big deal, that was immediately where my mind went: is this is almost like a precursor to what we saw in the Black Panther movies, where you have this very rich, very advanced culture 
that then comes to the U.S. and looks at them as being backwards. And, um, you know, you see you definitely have some of that commentary going on here at the beginning of the movie. When things like when he picks up the broken glass, and he's like, what a great country. You can just throw glass on the street. And it's like just this total misconception of why things are the way they are and and not realizing or, or not immediately understanding why something is uh, is different. So anyway, I, I've been rambling about a few things. I'm sure you've got a lot to unpack with that. So uh, why don't you jump in? For sure. So I have, like I said, I hadn't seen the movie in you know, a long time, right? It's been years and years and years since I saw this. So the movie opens up and I'm immediately just taken back to this movie because I, if you remember when we first met, you know, around the mid to early to mid nineties, when we first yeah. met, um, the crew that I hung out with when we were all working at Ontario place, we watched this movie over and over and over again. And we used to okay. quote it in a lot of the things we did on stage and stuff like that. Uh, but so this watching it again just really took me back to that. But I love how it opens up with the Paramount logo and then it fades to the mountain. Yes. Not the first yes. time that's been done. Raiders yep. of the Lost Ark as well. But in yep. this one, it was interesting because then it goes over the mountain and yep. it kind of goes down into the jungles and stuff. And that opening sequence with all the dancing in the palace of Zamunda was choreographed by Paula Abdul. And oh, she was okay. a Laker girl at the time, but she'd done some choreography for Janet Jackson. So John Landis wanted her for this. And the thing was, she knew nothing about African dance, but she did what any good professional would do in that situation. And she lied. <laughs> and she said, oh, of course I know how to choreograph African dancing. And she just proceeded to figure it out as she went along. Sometimes you just got to take a risk, you know, and take the plunge. Right. Yeah. And so anyway, John Landis and, and, and Eddie Murphy, we mentioned they, they obviously worked together in trading places five years before this in 83. And they, but they really feuded when they were making this movie. Really? I didn't know that. Big time. So when they worked together on Trading Places, Eddie Murphy was very young. He was new to Hollywood. And he was this incredible talent, obviously. And Landis really enjoyed working with him. But when they came back together to work on this and coming to America, Landis had said that Murphy had basically turned into this egomaniacal mess. Like he had this entourage he was rude. He was demanding on set. Now, Landis got the performance he wanted out of him, but Eddie Murphy was just a total a-hole, apparently. Um, but anyway, the opening scene, for me, and watching it again, it, it played on a couple of different levels because not only was Akeem a prince who was completely pampered, the other level it worked on, maybe inadvertently, maybe not, I don't know, but Murphy himself had become at this point, at least in his mind, in his own mind, he was Hollywood royalty and he yeah. deserved to be treated like a prince, right? He had yeah. this entourage, like I said, and he was debating the star treatment from the, the cast and the crew and the director. So the fact that the movie opens up with him getting lavishly treated, it really works well. Look at the rose petals. The musicians wake him up in the morning. Remember someone brushes his teeth and rubs his neck to, to gargle. Yeah. <laughs> and... I thought it was, it was funny. I got a laugh right away when he's complaining to his dad and he mentions the pampering and the attention and the bathing. Actually, I quite like the bathing. Yeah, <laughs> that made yeah. me laugh. <laughs> and then, um, the, I guess it's like, it's his, his assistant sings the queen to be song. Yeah. So my wife, I'm watching this movie with my wife and the guy starts singing, you know, you're my queen to be. And my wife just looks at me sideways and I'm thinking, oh, this isn't going to go well. But then Eddie Murphy gives a line and I just laugh because he says, he goes, I want a woman who will arouse my intellect as well as my loins. And it just it made me laugh. I don't know why that did. And then he gets his bride to bark like a dog and Murphy breaks the fourth wall and he looks at the camera. And oh, I didn't catch that. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that was interesting. So anyway, so we know what happens. He takes the him and Semi take the Concord jet to the United States and he lands. He goes to they go decide they're going to go to Queens. Right. And the cabbie says to him, you know, you dumb. Mm. And they get in and then Eddie Murphy turns to Semi and says, well, what does dumb mean? Yeah. And this line is actually struck me as being really, really important. And I never picked up on it when I first watched it. Because up until this point, Eddie Murphy was known for really, Profanity, really yeah. crude language. Absolutely. Yes, in yes. his stand-up and in his movies. Yes. Like, like he said the F word 223 times in the movie Raw. But in Coming to Sounds America, right. Yeah. In Coming to America, this is a script where he's a likable 
and toned down character. And that's why I think the whole reason why they added those characters in the barbershop was to kind of offset the lead character of Akeem's likability with more of an edge, since that's what Eddie Murphy's fans had come to expect from the movies. The thing is, too, is that this film changed Murphy's career in a couple of different ways. Number one, he, after this, then started playing multiple characters in movies like The Nutty Professor. And also, it changed him into more of an actor that starred in like more family-friendly movies, like Dr. Yeah. Doolittle, Daddy Daycare, and stuff Daddy like Daycare. that. Daddy Daycare, yeah. You know? So speaking of which, by the way, th- 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 so this was the first movie where Eddie Murphy played multiple characters because he's Prince Akeem and and he's uh, Clarence, the owner of the barbershop, you know, and then Saul, that older Jewish gentleman, was so funny. And Randy Watson from Sexual Chocolate. <clears throat> so this kind of launched him into making movies like The Nutty Professor with Hercules, Hercules, and all that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the old Jewish guy, Saul, is one of my favorite characters in the movie. And it reminded me that he, Eddie Murphy had done a sketch in 1984 on SNL called White Like Me. Have you ever heard of it? Ever seen it? Is that the one where he pretends to be a white guy and he goes yes. into the bank and he goes on the yes. bus and all that? Okay. Yes. Yeah, I have seen it. it so was it really struck good. me that this was similar to that because he was black and he was done up as a white guy. And apparently, rumor has it, he would walk around the set and he would walk around the Paramount back lot in, in his makeup as Saul. And he would even use his Eddie Murphy voice and people didn't believe it was him because <laughs> it didn't look like him, right? Nice. But I love the scene when they go into Queens. And, and again, there was multiple times I laughed a lot watching this again. Everybody everybody steals their luggage off the front the front stoop. When they go into the apartment, people just start stealing the luggage. And then the guy's showing them around the, the, the apartment. And he shows them the bathroom. And he's like, it's got a little bit of an insect problem. But you boys from Africa, you're used to that. <laughs> I, just, I just laughed at that line. And that that was the guy that played that landlord was Frankie Faison and I don't know if you remember when we um, went back and reviewed Do the Right Thing he was in that movie yeah yeah he was like one of the old guys on the corner that would drink beer and criticize the Asians yeah he's done lots of movies he was in The Good Wife too you liked that show yeah yeah yeah, I remember that but uh, then he's showing the apartment the apartment's got like a chalk outline of a blind guy and his seeing eye dog and his cane. And it's like yeah. rats running Shame what they did to that dog. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Again, I, just, I was laughing the whole time at this. And then Eddie, he goes out on the balcony and he yells, good morning to his neighbors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they yell back the profanities at him. Yeah. And he naively yells the profanities back. But again, it just, it plays up the innocence of his character. And the thing is, if you go back to the scene in the cab, when he says, you know, what does that word mean? Yeah. If you think about that, the way he delivers that line is completely out of character with Akeem in the rest of the movie. Because Akeem is very, he's very regal and, and he speaks well. He's intelligent. He quotes Nietzsche. Yeah, but I was say, they make a comment about how he's educated. And, and then, in, but in that scene, he's like, what does this mean? Like, it's like he's almost like dumb or innocent, right? Mm-hmm. Because they, they need to set up that character as being likable and innocent, you know, in some way. Yeah, you know, but still allow him to use the profanity, which was the, the, the neat thing when he goes out on the balcony and he he gets to he gets to yell the profanity, you know. Yeah, but in an innocent way. So so Eddie Murphy's fans are getting what they want in a way, kind of indirectly. Um, and then I just love when they they walk out in the street and Semi's like, I'm beginning to suspect that these are the people that stole our luggage. <laughs> And there's yeah, like and a kid. like the animal yeah. skins yeah. And, and the guy tries to sell him the gold toothbrushes. Yeah, it's got the toothbrush and the gold hair dryer. Hey, check this out. You got to buy it. The kid's on the skateboard with like a neck full of gold. It's yeah. so funny. So uh, the scene I think we need to talk about because it's just so great. There's two scenes I want to talk about right now. One okay. is when they go into Mighty Sharp, the barbershop. The barbershop, yep. Oh, God. Like So you hadn't seen it in, in a long time. Uh did it hold up? Did you, did you laugh at all? I mean, like you said, you made a good point. Like you've seen it. Once you've seen the movie once, it's hard to, you know, you don't get that surprise of the jokes right. and right. something. But I still laughed at this scene a lot. Yeah, I'm surprised how much I laughed at it. Yeah, it's it's good. I, I Yeah, don't get me wrong. Like, I enjoyed the movie and it was funny. Um, and yeah, I, I enjoyed these scenes. I didn't necessarily feel that um, 
you needed these characters in the movie as much as they appeared. It seemed to me almost like, well, if we're going to put them in all this makeup, let's give them a few scenes. Uh, plus the actors, like you said, if Eddie Murphy's running the show, he probably wanted to do it as much as anyone else. So he's like, well, let's give these guys another little scene. Let's give these guys. There's even that scene in the end credits, like the cutaway scene halfway through the credits where it's again, it's him as the old Jewish man telling the joke. It's almost like, you know, he's like, well, I've already got you've got the makeup and I'm here and I'm already let's do another scene. Um, so it's just like I say, I think it was to give the movie more of an edge. And maybe I, I never thought of that, but that, they that drop profanities. They're, they're oh, for you know, sure. you're for using sure. racial uh, slurs and things like that. Now, let me ask you this. I noticed something new that I hadn't noticed in previous viewings. Did you recognize the young kid who was getting his haircut when they came in the first time? I, I did this time. I never did the first time I watched it because the first time I watched it, like or when I used to watch this movie a lot back in the 90s, who yep. the hell is Cuba, Cuba Gooding Jr.? Don't yep. know who he is, right? But yep. yeah, there he is, and he and totally recognizable. He looks like he's about fifteen or something like yeah. that. But yeah, yeah, absolutely was him. Yeah, I was. Uh, I was surprised again. It just goes to uh, the list of cameos of all the people that have small parts in this movie, um, and he him being one of the ones that has a a, a little uh, guest spot right away, right at the beginning. Um, but yeah, I mean the the scene in the barbershop was certainly uh, entertaining, and again, it's interesting given that it was made in the 80s, where they made use of some of the old classic camera tricks where you can have Eddie Murphy playing two or even three roles in the same scene. And just by the way you position the camera or cut the scenes together, you don't need them all in frame simultaneously. So it's no problem to have one actor play three parts. And you sometimes forget that, that that's a skill, right? It's it's mm-hmm. like this this was deliberately someone thought we're going to do it. This is how we're going to compose a scene. This is going to shoot it. This is we're going to frame it. Um, and uh, so that that I always uh, found interesting, or at least when I was rewatching it, I thought, oh, this is this is clever how they put this together. I'm glad you brought that up because one thing that stood out to me when I was watching it, when Eddie Murphy is sitting in the chair and you see the old Jewish guy behind him, and you can totally tell it's a stand-in because he looks nothing like. Uh, yeah. When Eddie Murphy's playing him up close, nothing like it. And, and no. maybe because it's, I don't know, just a high res, you know, or something like that, that I noticed it. But that scene when they're talking about the boxing, and <laughs> just, I just, I was laughing the whole time. And he's like, every time we talk about boxing, white man's got to pull Rocky Marciano with the Yeah. <laughs> the guy's like, he kicked Joe Lewis's <laughs> He's like, Joe Lewis was 76 years old when they fought. <laughs> Because he just has to prove his point that Joe Lewis was the best. He goes, Joe Lewis always lying about his age. You know how old he was? 137 years old. <laughs> just like, it's just so ridiculously over the top to make their point. And then Akeem comes in and sits down to get a haircut. They just He just cuts off his rat tail. That'd be $8. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. The whole thing's so silly. Um, so two other quick scenes that, I, that, that happened right after that that just made me laugh was when they go to the bar looking for the, his bride. Yes. Yes. Oh my goodness. I just laughed and laughed at this sort of parade of like neurotic and crazy women that are in New York, and especially the one that's like the kind of big woman. And she's like, some guys go an hour, hour and a half. Man's got to put in overtime to get me off. It's like, oh my goodness, it's scary. And then the scene, the other I really, I just, again, I just laughed. Was that the Black Awareness Rally? Yes. When, the guys, you, you know him as Joe the Policeman from the What's Going Down episode of That's My Mama. And it's yeah. Randy Watson. And it's Eddie Murphy basically, I guess, making him look like Rick James kind of thing. Yeah, I would think so. And then he, sing, he sings The Greatest Love of All by Whitney Houston. And the, the, the guy that I like in this scene, though, is the little guy played by Clint James. He's like, oh, that boy is good. That boy can yeah. sing. And everyone else hates him. Everyone else is silent. And Clint Smith, he, he didn't really do anything else. He did that part. And I loved him so much in that part. He was in Airplane 2, the sequel. I was going to say, I don't. I never recognized him from anywhere other than this. And I always felt like I was supposed to know him from somewhere. Well, like I said, I always he, felt like I was missing the joke. Yeah, he had a small part in Airplane 2, the sequel. He was the guy that, have you seen Airplane 2, the sequel? I believe I saw – that's one where the plane goes in outer space, right? Yeah, it's uh, the lunar shuttle. He was the yeah. scalper that was selling the lunar shuttle tickets. Yeah, yeah. Like, lunar so shuttle long. tickets by the aisle, by the window. Anyway, so I <laughs> just – so then Randy Watson gets done singing and he's like, my band, sexual chocolate. Sexual chocolate. Sexual chocolate. And nobody nobody's, is clapping. I'm laughing away. My wife, <laughs> my wife just looks at me like I'm crazy and she basically is just like – 
she's like, what is this? This movie sucks. And she gets up and she walks out and she just doesn't say a word, just goes to bed. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm like, okay. She just, I don't know. Maybe I married the wrong woman. I don't know. Don't tell her. You know, man, she just got to loosen up and let her soul glow. Just let your and so they, they, they pass around the collection plate and Arsenio is like the barbershop guy and he puts his chicken bone in and his friends all start yelling at him. Yeah, that's a collection plate. Yeah. And I just, I just, I was laughing at the whole thing. Oh man, my wife hated that scene. Um, so the big thing I think about this movie too is that this movie didn't really achieve the success that Eddie Murphy's earlier movies did. Critics didn't like it. I think mostly because it takes Murphy, who's this high energy and, and raunchy guy, and then tones him down and makes him more likable, like we said, more of an innocent character. But uh, but the movie was not as big. It was, a, it was it was it made lots of money that year. I mean, it did well at the box office. It was the number two grossing film that year, uh, behind. If you remember the trivia from last week, the number one movie from 1988 was Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And this was number two. Funny enough, the last three movies that I've nominated on this podcast were all from 1988. Yeah, I'm totally shocked. Can yeah, you I know. I know. In my voice, I know. If well, you said 1998, I would be like beside myself. <laughs> but I mean, like, there, I always do Gen X movies, but it was like big coming to America and Who Framed Roger Rabbit were the last ones I did. Um, the McDowell's obviously made me laugh too. Love that. Yeah, they oh, have the Big Mac and we have the Big Mick. Yeah, exactly. They, they we both have twelve beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions. They have sesame seed bun. Our buns have no seeds. Yeah. Um, and then the Samuel L. Jackson scene, just great. And I think yeah. that was got to be one of Samuel L. Jackson's first films. I would think definitely one of his earlier roles. And what I realized when I was watching it, because mm-hmm. I love Pulp Fiction so much, right? he uses almost identical dialogue in Pulp Fiction it, when he's got the scene where the guy's tied up to the chair and he's like asking him, like, where's the case? It's, again, the, the, the dialogue isn't um, – isn't Shakespeare by any stretch of the imagination. It's, you, you know, it's just some expletives and some yelling, but I did notice that a few of the lines are, are the same and in the same order. And I thought I wouldn't be surprised if Tarantino being the movie fanatic that he is borrowed from this movie, knowing that Samuel Jackson's character would be in Pulp Fiction. Like once he had Samuel Jackson signed on, he's like, I'm going to just tweak this scene a little bit. I think he did because in, in the scene here in coming to America with, with Louis Anderson, he's like, you know, he calls him Fatso or something like that. And there's a similar scene in the final scene of Pulp Fiction in the restaurant when the robbery is going down, where he yeah. drops a line similar to that. So I think yeah. you're, I think you're onto something there. Yeah. For sure. I, I, again, yeah. That uh, uh, he's only got the Sam Jackson. This movie only has a very small scene, but yeah, it seems that Tarantino uh, borrowed some of the dialogue and and I, not that that's a bad thing, but coming back to it after seeing Pulp Fiction. 50 times you're like oh i've heard those lines before yeah exactly um and then so they go back to mcdowell's house and he has the party there and he calls it mcdowell's castle and it just that scene struck me as being a little interesting too because his idea of a castle is basically a little shack for akim right it's just that typical american arrogance Yes. You know, um, and I like when the Jenks family gets up from the couch, and there's the Jerry curl stains. <laughs> I I thought I thought the dad, man, that dad looks like Smokey Robinson. It was it wasn't his name's Arthur Adams. He he did some like TV shows like Starsky and Hutch and Sanford and Son. But I was like, man, that guy looks like Smokey Robinson. So then the other thing about the house was when Arsenio was playing the priest. Oh yeah, like when he's like he helped. Daniel, get out of the lion's den. He helped yeah. Gilligan get off the island. Um, one thing I wanted to mention was the, like we mentioned how this movie was a bit different, a bit of a departure for Eddie Murphy. Yes. And one of the things was the romantic leads, Murphy and Lisa in this, and maybe it was just me, but I felt that they had zero chemistry. Yeah, I agree. Which made me get think about this, and I, I think another reason why this movie seems a little bit out of place for Murphy is that up until this point, when this movie came out, he'd never had any romantic interests in his movies. Not in 48 Hours, not in Beverly Hills Cop, not in Trading Places. This was the first movie that he had a romantic interest, and it didn't really work. And it's kind of interesting because it's an integral part of the plot, <laughs> you know? Yeah. 
like again, it's it's not Murphy's typical kind of film role, you know, at least at the time when it came out. No, I, I yeah, I agree. I, and the woman who played Lisa, I I had never seen her before this movie, and I don't think I've seen her since this movie. Um, whether or not that had anything to do with the success, lack of success, lack of chemistry, I don't know. But I don't know. Maybe I just always felt, even as a younger person, that that she was miscast for the role. Uh, probably from what you're saying, like it didn't really feel like they had chemistry. And maybe if it had been, if someone else had been uh, cast in that role, it might have worked a little better. Interesting. Interesting, because I'm watching it again last night, and I'm thinking, like, I liked her performance. I, I thought she was very likable. I thought she came off as very charismatic. And I think in a lot of the romantic scenes, I could really, she was really trying. I could see, Mm. but there was just no chemistry between the two leads. But I I don't think it was, you know, a lack of trying on her part. Uh, So uh, one thing I got to mention is when they're walking down the Hudson River and Donna Michi and Ralph Bellamy cameo as the Dukes. Oh man, that is so great. We're back, you know? Uh, And we mentioned on this podcast before how, John Landis, he likes to incorporate elements of his past movies uh, into yes. his, uh, his, you know, subsequent films, like Twilight Zone. They mentioned Animal House. And he's got yeah. this other recurring gag where he puts a See You Next Wednesday movie poster in almost all of his movies. Yes. Like it, it's not obviously not a real movie. It's a joke. I don't I'm assuming it's a play on See You Next Tuesday. Which we don't, which we don't need to get into for obvious no. reasons. But but uh, I know he also does that in the uh, thriller music video, Michael Jackson. It's He's in there as well. So that as well, yeah, yeah. So anyway, so so Sorry, the, where was the reference in this movie? I didn't catch it. So when when Akeem goes into the subway to chase after Lisa, it's mm-hmm. a huge movie poster on the inside of the subway, and it also, if you look closely, I noticed again maybe because it was in high def, it says starring Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh, nice. Which I thought was interesting, tying back to, to, to trading places. Nice. Um, so the king comes to America to get Akeem and Semi, because Semi wires him and asks him for a million Why bucks. not ask for a cool mill? Yeah. And the scene when they go to the Mighty Sharp Barbershop, and the king is wearing this lion skin pelt, and the old Jewish guy feels it. He's like, what is that, real velvet? Just again, I just laughed at it. It was so funny. And... Then I love the whole subplot that's going on with Arsenio Hall and the sister. Yeah. And he, and he tells her that he's the prince and Murphy's the servant. And I love how she leaves the room and she says to uh, to Arsenio, she's like, your secret's safe with me, your highness. And she looks at Murphy. She's like, bye. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I don't know. I just laughed. <laughs> and I just thought it was funny. And everyone looks at the sister. <laughs> and and she's, she's like, Akeem's not the prince. He's the prince. And, and, and points at Arsenio. And, and the king's like, who told you that? <laughs> and, and Arsenio just kind of shrinks away. That made yeah. me laugh out loud. Like, just his reaction to that. And then... But now- let me yep. ask you this. Yep. Did it surprise you that the daughter was like that when her dad is basically like that too? The the sister, you mean? Yeah, like the sister wanting to be with the prince and sort of looking down on the servant. Like she gets – the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. That's exactly how her dad treats people. It you're was. rich. You're famous. You're wealthy. You're in power. I'm going to love you. Oh, you're just the guy who mops up the puke. Uh, I'm going to look down on you and just, you know. Not necessarily treat you like garbage, but I'm not going to treat you like I treat everybody else. And essentially the sister demonstrated that that's the lesson she's learned from her father because you see her do this too. Well, absolutely. But I think it's it's maybe even a little bit more be, than that because she's also a little bit uh, sort of, I don't know, sex crazy, you know, or, or guy crazy. Because remember when Daryl comes into her, her room out of the rain? Yeah, at the end. And, and then and he she, looks at the camera. Like, he, he breaks the fourth wall too, yeah. right? They do it more than once in this movie because she's like, the first thing we need to do is get you out of these wet clothes. Just let yourself, he just looks yeah. at the camera. <laughs> so again, pretty funny. One other thing that I don't, I don't know if you're aware of this, but this movie was involved in a lawsuit with Art Buckwald. He sued Paramount because he said that he had the idea for this movie. He had written a treatment called King for a Day, and he claimed that Eddie Murphy stole his idea, and he actually won his lawsuit. Paramount had to settle with him. I was going to say, was it a win, or did they come to terms before a judgment could be made? Because that happens a lot. So that nobody has to admit guilt, and then you sign an NDA, and you never hear the details. I'm pretty sure he won the lawsuit, and Paramount had to settle. Yeah, I, I knew there was money exchanged. I just didn't know the specifics of it. Um, and and from what I understand, they're uh, in the process of making a sequel. So obviously, whatever agreement 
was reached included all future rights to any sort of spinoffs, remakes, reimagining, sequels, or anything of that nature. Because I can't imagine they're going to put a, a Coming to America 2 together only to risk being sued again. That's a good point. Interesting. This movie also got some criticism from the black community when it came out for its portrayal of black life in Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it also got a bit of praise, and, and rightly so, because if you think about it, and you mentioned this before, that this was pretty much the first Eddie Murphy movie that was almost exclusively about black people. Yes. If you don't count the Dukes, there's only three speaking parts for white people in this movie. There's the cabbie, the telegram lady that you mentioned, and Louis Anderson. Louis Anderson. But yeah. up until this, when this movie came out, Eddie Murphy's movies were pretty much all about him. He was always like like the smartest guy in the room. And the fish out of water, right? Yeah. Was always, he was... He was the only person of color in surrounded you know, by white people. every movie yeah. that he was in. Yeah. But he always brought to that, like you said, smartest guy in the room. He's Beverly Hills cop. He goes to Beverly Hills as the only person of color into Beverly Hills where it's super white. And what do you know? He's the best detective. He's the only guy who can solve the case. The other guys all have their fingers up their butt and they can't do it. Or, uh, you know, with 48 hours, they literally have to get him out of jail because the other cop can't do it without his help. So, you know, it would always put him in a, that fish out of water idea, but he always had the upper hand where they're, I'm not the fish out of water and I'm being made fun of or being put down because I'm different. It's I'm bringing something to this equation that you didn't have until you brought me in. And right after this too, then he made Harlem Nights and Boomerang, which mm-hmm. both featured prominently black casts as well. So again, yep. this movie changed his career in a lot of different ways because then he went on to, to focus more on african-american issues with more of african-american cast members yeah and then like i said let him into more multiple character movies and more family-friendly movies so if you think about it too it's in a lot of ways it's this movie is kind of a a metaphor for eddie murphy and his career because he he was like this prince this hollywood royalty who has this lavish lifestyle he gets whatever he wants everybody loves the guy but then he wants to do his own thing but in the process, I think he kind of got a chance to see what the outside world is is kind of really like. And he wants to go back to, you know, what he knows best and and, and what people expect from him. Mm-hmm. Interesting. This this wasn't just a transitional movie for Eddie Murphy. It was also pretty transitional for John Landis, too. This This was pretty much the end of his run as a successful Hollywood director. But he did go through a rough part even before this. You know, if you think about the things that happened with Twilight Zone and stuff like that, his career was in a lot of trouble as a director. Mm-hmm. And uh, but this pretty much marked the end of it. I would say this this was it. I mean, he hasn't he hasn't directed a film in over twenty years. And and, yeah, if you th- and think about it, he brought he brought us Animal House, Blues Brothers, American Werewolf in London, Trading Places, Spies Like Us, and then he just dropped off the map. Yeah, I'm looking at his IMDb here, and he, although he has a lot of director credits after 1988, I don't recognize any of these. It was a lot of uh, rap. He did he did the stupids and stuff. And now Eddie Murphy and him did kind of mend their fences because Eddie Murphy brought him back as a director for Beverly Hills Cop Part Three, but the movie didn't do very well. It wasn't no, very well received. So you know, John Landis just lost it. I, I really think I don't know. I I, I wouldn't say that it was. It was what happened on Twilight Zone that ruined his career because he, he, you know, he was able to come back with with this movie and it was, you know, really successful. It was really, really good. But then after this, that was it. He he made a couple of dumb Blues Brothers two thousand. God awful. Um, but like I say, I I believe that this movie kind of marked the end of it marked the end of the the comedy era in Hollywood. You know, from the seventies and eighties when there was all these comedies usually mostly r-rated comedies but after this they they basically stopped making movies like this anymore they've made comedies since obviously but mostly they suck (laughs) and and i think that there was a shift to try to get more people in the seats so the r-rated comedy basically went the way of the dinosaur yeah you know yeah that's fair and i mean you got to think of the timing too right like in the in the late 80s and early 90s especially the early 90s you have things like grunge music where the attitudes of that younger demographic are changing considerably and um 
you know, the, the kinds of things that appeal to a young person in the 80s is not necessarily now the same thing that's appealing to the next generation of young people in the 90s. And that's always going to happen. There's always going to be change. And I think that the people that make movies realize that this this new generation, this uh, 90s slacker generation, the you know, that comes with the whole grunge movement, th- this isn't the kind of thing they were interested in. And you have a real shift in the kind of movies that get made. You get things like Reality Bites and Empire Records and Singles, where it's more about this um, – you know, this this sort of slacker idea, this, uh, you know, woe is me and the all about the music and the, the independent films and things like that, which is a great departure from what you had in the in the mid to late 80s. That's a really good point, because the 90s were all about independent films and, mm. and the comedy genre just kind of fizzled out. It, it probably wasn't until Judd Apatow came along, like about 15 years later, where yeah. there was that resurgence of those kind of R-rated raunchy comedies. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I mean, we did American Pie, uh, which I want to say came out in around 99. And yeah, so like that's that's over 10 years later. And even that was sort of you could say sort of the precursor to what was to come in the next few years. Um, But yeah, you had a a very long hiatus where you were not seeing these kinds of comedies anymore. There just wasn't an audience for it. Like I say, I think Coming to America was kind of the end. It marked the end of the classic comedy. And in my mind, there's really only been two comedies, maybe three, that have kind of had that spirit that these classic comedies had, not counting Judd Apatow's movies. The movies that I think most resemble the comedies of the 70s and 80s, like I say, there's two of them, maybe three. Private Parts from 1997. It's the Howard, the Howard Stern, Stern movie. movie. Yeah, it's directed, it. directed by Betty Thomas. Yep. That one embodies this. And so good. Also, The School of Rock from 2003 oh. with Jack Black. Even no, though it wasn't... I disagree with you on that one. It wasn't an R-rated comedy, but I think it had the spirit... And the formula of these old comedies. The other one, too, was also from 97 was Liar Liar with Jim yeah. Carrey. I'm not a big Jim Carrey fan. I really don't no, like his movies. But that one, I thought, had the same kind of spirit of these kind of comedies. But um, but like a lot of these uh, comedies from this era, this movie had a lot of really good quotes. I thought <laughs> at the beginning when the king and the queen are talking about love. And the king says, there's a fine line between love and nausea. <laughs> Just, I laughed at that. And, and I love when they're, they're jousting with those big sticks at the beginning, Arsenio and, and Eddie Murphy. And, and, and Arsenio says, he calls him, you sweat from a baboon's yeah. <laughs> so like, Where did that come from? <laughs> and I love, I actually really like the line when he says, Eddie Murphy says, it's also a tradition that times must and always do change, my friend. Yeah. I thought that was really good. And of course, I love the scene at the basketball game when the guy comes out and he's like, I will cherish this experience for the rest of my life. And they're like, who's that? Oh, just a man I met in the restroom. <laughs> just yeah. you, just a and, and then you mentioned uh, when the credits roll, there's like a sequence where they show clips of the characters and the actors who play the roles. And then it stops and it goes back to Saul, the Jewish man. Yes. In the barbershop. And I, and I, I, for some reason, I just kept the, the credits going and I, and I watch and I remember seeing that again. And he's telling, it's so stupid, but, it's, but I laughed because he's telling the joke about the soup. Yeah. Oh, I just taste the soup. The guy says, I don't want to taste the soup. I just taste the soup. Okay. I'll taste the soup. Where's the spoon? Ah, 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 what do you know from funny? <laughs> I'm like, that's the, because I think I, I remember too, around that time I worked at a restaurant and um, the, the owner was an old Macedonian man who used to come in and tell us jokes that made no sense. We never got, there was like no punchline. It was like, it was just like that joke about the soup. Where's the spoon? Ah, ha, 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 what do you know? Like, so, so in your, in a reversal of fortune, he was the coat. He yes, the cringiest, the cringiest of all time. Of all time to bring it full yeah. circle. So you enjoyed watching the movie after all these years? I certainly did. Yeah, yeah, it was good. I uh, I would say uh, probably a solid B, maybe a B minus. Like there were certainly. Uh, I think it, because of my uh, familiarity with it, I'm probably grading it a little harder than I might if it was something I'd never seen before. I think I probably would have would, would give it a slightly higher grade. Definitely would recommend it to people who haven't seen it. Definitely would have no problem rewatching it. Um, but yeah, I'm thinking probably like 
seven, seven and a half out of ten, like maybe a B or a B minus. Yeah, I think I'd rate it right around the same. It's funny because John Landis used to always say that he felt that this movie needed to be recut a little bit. It was a little bit too long and it was a little too slow in places. And I thought, oh, man, he's crazy. But watching it now, and maybe it's just through the lens of today with movies as they are with, you know, all the action and so much in it. I guess I can kind of see where he was, you know, kind of coming from. Mm-hmm. There's like just maybe just a couple times where it's a little slow in places. So, uh, so I think I would fall right around where you said around seven, seven and a half for this. Yeah. But I enjoyed it. I I laughed, and 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 even though I knew the jokes were coming, um, it had been so seen them that there was quite a few times that uh, that that I I found I caught my, found myself just laughing out loud and really yeah. enjoying it. You mentioned about a sequel for this. Um, yeah, so uh, I've I've heard one is in the works. Is that I heard true? They, exactly. I hear oh. that it, it is being made right now. Yuck. So, or well, I guess probably not right now, but I mean, it's probably on hold. Um, but I'm kind of curious. I haven't read anything about. I don't know anything about what it is, but I, I suspect it'll be a next generation style story because they're calling it Coming to America. Uh, probably just Coming to America Part Two. I'm sure it has a subtitle, but I suspect it'll be sort of a next generation tale. Um, and I'm thinking. Well, how do you retell this story in a way that makes it worth retelling? Like we already know this, the first story. What are you going to do differently that might make it a little more interesting? And I think for me, the only uh, one of the things that, that would make it a little more interesting to me is uh, do it, do it the gender swap. So the person coming to America is is a young lady instead of a young man. I think I think that's sort of the standard when you're going to remake a movie these days. If it's a movie that used to star a whole bunch of old white men, now it's time to put some ladies in in the in the driver's seat. And I'm thinking, what if it was a gay woman who comes to America, maybe in the, the back in the country, Zumunda, for whatever reason, she can't be herself because she's supposed to marry a man and, and have a child and all the rest of that. And as someone who's gay, she doesn't feel comfortable admitting this to herself and coming out to her friends and family. So she comes to America to, you know, find out who she really is and and again you're trying to find a partner and in this case the partner is a woman looking for a woman and and it's that's that's the sort of aha moment of this movie uh i think i think that could work um of course when you're going if that's the the direction it's going to be a very fine line with comedy you got to make sure you're you're not pointing and saying haha it's funny because they're gay because you know that's not cool uh, but i think that there's definitely room for an interesting story and again that would give us a new tale to tell, but sort of use the formula we saw in the first one and, and show us something different. It's not just child doesn't want to be in the arranged marriage, comes to America, finds a spouse, done. So I saw that movie already. Give me something different. Give me a reason to go and pay money to see this. So that's just off the top of my head. What about you? If they in this sequel, what do you think they might do differently? So of course I'm going to be the curmudgeon. I'm going to say that they shouldn't re- they shouldn't do a sequel. Well, uh, I, I'm going to agree with you on that one, and I, I reserve judgment, but I think you're probably right. Um, they maybe should. Eddie Murphy is a widower now, and he's but his what, wife has passed. Who knows? But what you're talking about is a completely different movie, right? And not that I'm discrediting. I actually think what you're saying is has some merit to it. Uh, but that's a totally different movie. So then, just make a, an original new movie and call it something else. And don't don't tie it to this. Don't tie it to the the coming to America. The coming to America. The the, the cool thing with it is it's a very tidy story. Mm-hmm. You know, he starts out, he doesn't want to marry this woman. He has never met her before. He wants to fall in love and meet his own, you know, wife. So he comes to America, he finds his bride, he goes back and he marries her and it's done. The movie's over. Like the only reason to make it at this point is to try and make money. And I don't know. I just don't think they should do it. That's my thought. Yeah, I would think whatever whatever the sequel uh, is about, you've got to keep in mind that in today's day and age, social media is everywhere. People have cameras on their phones. There's no secrecy at all. Somebody, well, I mean, we even saw it in the first one where he's standing in line at the basketball game. Somebody who recognizes him from his home country stops and, you know, oh, my, my prince is a great day of my whole life. Like, think of how that would work in a in a, the era of social media. It just takes one person to recognize you, click internet, hashtag, and now everybody knows. Mm-hmm. So the whole concept of the Get first Get a selfie where, with him, you know? Yeah, the, first con- the concept of the first one where he tells his parents one thing, but he comes to America with a different agenda and they don't necessarily know what he's been doing. That wouldn't work. There's no way that someone who is royalty in this foreign country could come to America that's got so many people, so many cameras, and and keep that a secret. So I think that whatever whatever the story is going to be about, they really need to make sure that, that 
it's it doesn't involve this level of secrecy that could easily be undone with one selfie. Like that just seems like a, a tremendous mm. oversight. Yeah, it'd be, I would I would not want to be working on the script for the sequel. That's for sure. Yeah, no kidding. No. Okay. On that note, let's have some fun with Caveman. <laughs> Okay, since I nominated this film, Derek, it's over to you. What do you have for us this week to have some fun? All right. All right. So uh, this uh, this trivia segment might be a little long because I've got a lot of stuff I want to run past you. Sure. But uh, it's sort of going to go in a few different directions. Oh, let's have some fun. The greater mm-hmm. theme is mm-hmm. actors that like to play multiple parts in the same movie. So okay. we already talked about that. Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall both do multiple roles in this movie. And uh, so what I'm going to ask you is, I'm going to give you the name of the performer. I'm going to tell you what movie they're in. And I just want you to tell me how many different roles they played. And if you can tell me the names of some or all or any of the characters, that's bonus. And to start it off, we're going to go with Eddie Murphy. I've got a list of seven movies he's done where he plays multiple characters. All right. And I'm going to make this real easy. The first one on the list is Coming to America. How many different characters does he play? How many characters does he play in this? So he plays uh, Akeem, he plays Saul, and he plays the, the the barber from Mighty Sharp. So at least three. I'll, I'll say three. You missed one. He plays four characters. The fourth character is Randy Watson. Oh, of course, Randy Watson. I mentioned it. Yep. All right. Go figure. Uh, okay. Uh, so uh, the next one, uh, these are all going to be Eddie Murphy for a bit. Okay. Eddie Murphy. The movie was Vampire in Brooklyn. How many get different roles do you think he played? Oh, God. I haven't seen the movie, so I don't know. So I would just be guessing at it, and I will say he played four. He played three. Ah, I should have If you haven't seen it, I won't ask you to name any of the characters. Nope. Never saw the All movie. Right. Okay. This one I think you have seen. Eddie Murphy in the movie Bowfinger. Oh, I, I, I do remember seeing Bowfinger. I think he played – did he play himself and then somebody – else who look like him so i'll just say two that's right two he played brother hit ramsey and jiff ramsey okay all right next eddie murphy movie on the list is norbit the movie that cost eddie murphy an oscar norbit how many different roles did he play Uh, he played again i have not seen it but he played uh him so he played his character and then he played like a big overweight woman so I will say he must have did another one. I'll say he did three. He did three. Oh, you got yes. him right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I, I saw Total Norbit. Guess. And it was terrible. But in the Norbit trailer, there is a scene where Eddie Murphy, in the, the makeup as the really large woman, goes to a water park. And she's wearing a bikini. And when she's coming into the water park in the bikini, and I, I want to say it's Tom Hanks's son. Colin Hanks is the guy at the gate. And he stops her and he goes, are you wearing bottoms under there? Cause her belly hangs so low and she lifts up her gut. Of course I'm wearing bottoms. And in my house now, whenever somebody's <laughs> running around you're like, are you wearing bottoms? That's the instinctual response. Of course I'm wearing bottoms, whether you are or whether you're not, that's just the appropriate line to that question. All right. Back to the trivia. Okay. Eddie Murphy did a movie called meet Dave. Okay. How many roles did he play? I don't know. I will say he did two. He um, did too. Oh, geez, I have total guess. <laughs> I want to say Meet Dave is one where he's like an alien inside, a, like a little alien inside a robot that's the size of a person. Okay. <laughs> and so I think he's the little alien and the the person. So yeah, he played two roles, Dave and the captain. Nice. All right. This is getting to a little more familiar territory. We've got two more Freddie Murphy. He did The Nutty Professor and Nutty Professor to The Clumps. In the first Nutty Professor, how many different roles did Eddie Murphy play? Oh, goodness. So he... Oh, it's been so long since I So he played the professor. It was Professor Clump, right? Yes. And then was it the thin guy was like Buddy? Yep. I can't remember. And then Buddy, Lo- Buddy Love. Buddy Love. Buddy Love. That was it. Um, and then he played the mom and the dad and I think the grandma. So I'll say five. He played seven. Oh, jeez. Well, who did I miss? Did, did so he get he, any, was he, I right on those ones? Yeah, you're all right on those ones. He also played a character called Lance Perkins. I don't remember. And at the dinner table, he also played uh, the brother, Ernie Klump. Oh, he was the brother, too. That's yeah. right. Oh, he was yes. the mom, the dad, the grandma, and the brother, and himself. So he was yes. five of the people around the dinner table. Yep. All right. And then in the sequel, mm-hmm. and I guess this really comes down to you. Do you think he played more characters, less characters, or the same characters? I'll give you, I'll give you a hint. 
He played most of the same characters. So did he play fewer, more, or the same? I will say he played the same. He played one additional character. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it's sort of a trick question with that one because he plays the dad, but the dad in the movie becomes younger. He drinks the magic potion. Oh, okay. So he's credited as both the old father and the young father, which technically same guy. So I'll give you that one if you said the same. Okay. All right. Uh, Another actor that liked to do this a lot was Mel Brooks. Oh, yes, he did. You're right. Three Mel Brooks performances. You got to tell me how many different characters he played. And this is more in your wheelhouse. So I kind of expect you to get the answers right and be able to tell me the answers of who he played. Yeah. Oh, okay. We're going to start. We're going to start with the two movies that you've already reviewed on this podcast. Okay. Spaceballs. How many characters does Mel Brooks play? He was the president and he was yogurt. And I think that was it. So I'll say two. Full marks, Chris. Yep. He, oh, yes. Two, I got it right. the two. President Scrooge. I was trying to think yep. if there was another one in there, too, or not. Okay. okay. Blazing Saddles. Well, he was uh, William J. LePetamane, and he was the, oh, he was the Indian chief that pulls over yes. the, the wagon train. Yes. Indian chief. Yes. So that was, that was it, though. That was just the two. That was it. You're right, too. You got them both. Good job. Oh, yes. <laughs> All right. This, this is where we're really going to we're going to stretch it here. <laughs> History of the World Part One. Oh, no. He played lots of parts in there. He did play oh, lots of parts. How goodness. many? Oh, geez. He was. Oh, what was the guy's name? Comicus? Yes. And. Stand up philosopher. <laughs> yeah, the stand up philosopher. He was Torquemada. Hey, Torquemada. What yep. do you say? And he was the, the king. Yep. And it's good he, to be and he was the piss boy. So I will say he was four. He was also Moses. Oh, he was Moses. I have 15, 15 commandments. No, 10. 10 commandments yep. for all to obey. Yep. Oh, of course. Oh, he did five. God that. Oh, so right. good. Right. Uh, I'm just going to pick a couple more here for you. Okay, that here we go. John Cleese in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Not sure if you're a big Monty Python fan, but... Oh, I like Monty Python. The the Monty Python's troupe always played multiple roles. There was no hesitation in that regard. John Cleese, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. How many characters do you think he played and how many of them can you name? Oh, God. He was the... He was Sir Lancelot. Was. And... What else did he do in that? Was he the Black Knight? Was. Wasn't he one of the poor people? He was. Peasant number three. Oh, okay. okay, I'll take it. King of the Yeah. Um, oh, God. Was he the Enchanter? He was. He yes. the Enchanter. Nicely done. Oh, I really like that movie a lot. I'm trying to think. I, I'll say that's it. So what is that? Four? I'll, I'll go with that. Would be wrong. You missed oh. two of them. Oh, like who did I miss? He was uh, Second Swallow Savvy Guard. Okay. And Taunting French Guard. Okay. Okay. Guess <laughs> on top of the. Uh, we already got one. Uh, all right, and uh, I'll give you a nice easy one to to end these off with. All right. This this, this came up in uh, conversation, I think, during last week's episode, or the week. Yeah, it was last week's episode. Peter Sellers in Doctor Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Oh How many God, roles he did he so play, good. and can you name the characters? So he was the president, Merkin Buffley. We mentioned that yes. he was Doctor Strangelove, and. Yes. He was Mandrake, too, I think. Yes, so, Lionel so. Mandrake. Three? Yes. Is that right? Three? That's it. Three, you got That's it. it. Yes. Yeah, I knew I had to give you a nice, easy, not, right over the plate for the Exactly, to finish that one no, off. You're pretty good. Not yeah. bad, not bad. Nicely done. Some, of them, were, some of them were pretty tough, though, man. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, before we move on at our next show, it's over to you for your movie pick. It is indeed. So, so do you have a movie teed up that you'd like me to watch yes, for the yes, next episode? And if yep. so, what is it? It is the 1998 Steven Soderbergh film, Out of Sight, starring George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez. Have oh. you seen it before? Out of Sight? No, I have not seen it. I don't even think I've ever heard of it. It It's good. I really enjoyed it. I just, I knew I was going to give this one to you, so I watched it again recently. George Clooney, Jennifer Lopez, Ving Rhames, Don Cheadle. Dennis Farina, uh, Albert Brooks, Louis Guzman. It's got a big cast. Jennifer to- Lopez is in it, and it's a good movie. It's a fantastic movie. Wow. Yeah, it was quite. It's quite good, and it has that nonlinear storytelling technique that we talked about uh, oh, a couple yes. episodes back as well, yeah. which I really love, and I think was done to great effect. 
And uh, Soderbergh, like, he knows how to make a movie. And this uh, this is one of his early collaborations with Clooney. Obviously, they wanted on to do uh, all the Oceans 11, 12, and 13 movies. So I, I really hope you enjoy it. Uh, but I won't be surprised if you don't. We'll come back next week. We'll talk about it. And uh, I'll tell you all the reasons why you should like it that you don't. And Soderbergh also did Traffic and Sex, Lies, and Videotape too, right? Yeah, he's got a, a, he's a, a really good incredible director. resume. Yeah. Well, this would be interesting. I'm glad. Like I say, I'm not even really familiar with that movie at all. Well, it came out after the 80s, so of course I would never yeah. have heard of it. Yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to really tell you much about it. Right. It's not like Memento, where it's like, don't look anything up. Right. But, yeah. Um, Again, I find with a lot of these movies, the less you know going in, the more you're more likely you are to enjoy it because sure. you can sometimes get a little bit of that wow factor where you're like, oh, I, I didn't realize that's where this movie was going. No, that so. makes sense. Okay, so I'll watch Out of Sight and we'll come back next week and we'll, we'll review that one. And if you want to reach out to us, like we mentioned at the top of the show on Twitter, you will get Derek at Amaron underscore DM and you'll find me on Twitter at C McBrien and that's I-E-N. And of course, popgoesyourworld.com is our website with all of our contact information. Until next time, this is Chris McBrien for Derek Myers saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 